Well, let's continue to worship God together this morning by together opening our copy of the scriptures to Daniel chapter 9. As we continue to make our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now, last week we looked at the first half of this chapter, the urgent prayer of Daniel as he confessed Israel's sin, as he sought the Lord to forgive and restore. Uh, Today, we're going to see the answer to that prayer in verses 20 through 27. And, And this section contains the famous 70 weeks of Daniel. It's one of the most controversial and disputed sections in all of Scripture. But as I hope you'll see, although we may not be able to identify every detail, uh, the main point should be clear enough. Daniel chapter 9 then, verse 20 through 27, brethren, as I read, remember, this is the very word of God. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come out now to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's ask for His favor in the preaching of it. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that just as You sent um, an angel Gabriel to give Daniel understanding of these words, we pray that in the same manner you would send the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our heart to give us understanding and wisdom about what you have revealed here. Lord, we know that you have inspired this passage. You've revealed this for the good and edification of the church. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless it to our hearts. 
Hear us as we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In light of all the mystery and all the questions and all the debate that surrounds this passage, the most immediate thing that should strike us is that God answers prayer. Before we even get to the prophecy and the questions, that that should be our very first takeaway. God answers prayer, sometimes He answers immediately. There's such a a beauty and a comfort and and encouragement to this that we ought not to take for granted. However, we should also see right away, while God er uh, certainly answers prayer, He doesn't always answer in the way that we might expect. That's also clear on the surface of this. Remember, Daniel prays because he's heartbroken over the state of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. He knew, though, that the temple was in shambles because they had broken the Old Covenant. They had sinned against God. But he also knew that the prophet Jeremiah had said that after 70 years of exile, the Lord will restore the holy city. So while Daniel prays and God hears his prayer and grants his request, God also sends Daniel, Gabriel, to show Daniel that he hadn't quite understood that prophecy by Jeremiah as well as he might have thought. If you think about it, in Daniel's mind, as he's praying, he's looking for military and political relief for Israel. He's looking for the physical temple to be rebuilt, the regular worship and the sacrifices to resume. He's looking for the resurgence of the godly nation as a national power. He's looking for God to establish a permanent place of dwelling and worship on earth. But the answer that he receives is very different. Yes, he's told in verse 25, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But but then, what do we get? Desolation is decreed. Sacrifices and offerings are going to be put to an end. The city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed again. It's not exactly the answer that Daniel's looking for. It's not exactly what he had understood about Jeremiah's prophecy. But I want you to think back to what we considered last week. Do you remember when I argued that this prayer represents a a huge focus, a shift in focus in the, uh, uh, let me put it this way, a huge shift in the focus of this book? We saw that because up until this chapter, chapter 9, the the, the grand perspective of the book was Israel good, pagans bad. Right? Israel, every Israelite in mention of the Jewish people up to chapter 9 is they are faithful. And, And it's the Gentile, pagan, kings and kingdoms and monsters and beasts of the world who tyrannize and oppress and persecute God's people. But with this prayer something dramatically changes. I argued there that Daniel saw the real problem. He saw, finally, that it wasn't the evil kings and the culture that's gone straight to hell and the evil nations that's the real problem. 
He saw those are just tools in God's hands. God does whatever he wills with them. Daniel 4.35. The real problem is that Israel had sinned against God. And that they were under his judgment. And he knew that had to be dealt with. If there was any hope for anything. Well, the answer that we see today just reinforces that. For while God's answer to Daniel's prayer isn't quite what he expected or anticipated, we see in this answer that God addresses the real issues. The most important issues. The ultimate issues. Sin, atonement, redemption, eternal restoration. And brethren... The message that God sent Gabriel to deliver to Daniel is the same message that we need to hear today as well. Prophecy, God's predictions of the future, God's word, it's not given for our speculation and debate so that we can argue over dates and kings and charts. In God's plan of redemption, we may never see the redemption of kings and kingdoms and nations and cultures until the day Christ returns. Rather, these words are meant to encourage and comfort us and assure us with the fact that God cares about our greatest and most ultimate, most important needs. This is a passage that calls us to direct our eyes away from the kings and kingdoms and cultures of this world that we might fix our eyes above. On things above and the one who is seated above. Because what we find is that God certainly answers our questions about the future. That's clear. But in answering our questions, He shows us that even our questions are all wrong. He must tell us what our greatest needs are. And He tells us our greatest needs by declaring what He has done for us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to see today. And in in this sense, I want us to consider how God answers Daniel's prayer and shows us and Daniel how our greatest and most ultimate needs are met in Christ. As we look at the passage, um, we can see both an immediate answer to Daniel's prayer and then an ultimate answer. And so um, those will kind of be our two points today, just two points. Immediate answer is further revelation and the ultimate answer is a promise of action. So first, let's consider. God answers Daniel's prayer by giving him wisdom. That's in verses 20 through 23, the non controversial section of this passage. God answers Daniel's prayer by giving him wisdom. Remember, I said that should be our most immediate takeaway because the proof that God heard Daniel's prayer is that. While I was speaking and praying, Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord, came in swift flight to him. Let's think about how in the previous verse, verse 19, Daniel had prayed, Oh Lord, do not delay. 
(laughs) And he receives a response before the words are even out of his mouth. He's still talking. And the Lord did not delay. In fact, if we look down at verse 23, Gabriel tells him that at the beginning of his prayer, the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out from the throne of God. You see, this shows us how God always hears and answers prayer immediately. He immediately set the wheels in motion. Even though Daniel wouldn't see the actual answer for a very long time. The same is true for us as well. When God hears our prayers, He sets the wheel in motion. And and, and how in, in our weak faith and in our unbelief, we get impatient, don't we? We think He hasn't heard. We think our prayers are dying at the ceiling. While we may not know that God has set those wheels in motion, and we must trust Him and we must be patient with God's timetable. So God immediately answers that prayer, but but I also want you to note in verse 21, the end of verse 21, that the angel came to him at swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Um, I think this is insightful, and, and I think it's important. It's an amazing statement about Daniel's devotion because if you think about it, it had been 70 years. That's a lifetime. 70 years since that evening sacrifice had been offered. 70 years because the temple was no more. It had been destroyed. There were no sacrifices and offerings. And yet, this gives us insight that Daniel is praying, and we saw that uh, back in chapter 6 as well, Daniel is still ordering his prayers and his worship around God's liturgical calendar. It's well known that church attendance in America has significantly declined since the COVID shutdowns in 2020. One Major reason for that, as as people have studied it, is that people got used to having their Sundays off. You know? And so, when the shutdowns ended, many just stopped attending altogether. Oh, well, my life is so much better now. Or they catch up on live stream at their own convenience. Got used to that as well. But, But what a rebuke. From, from Daniel here. 70 years he was hindered. 70 years without an evening sacrifice. 70 years of no public formal corporate worship. And yet his prayer, two times in this book, his prayer has shown that his life and his worship is still structured around God's liturgical calendar. Brother and I say this because don't be mistaken, we have a liturgical calendar in the New Covenant as well. It's called the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week. Here then, this is a call that we would have a life that's structured around the worship of God rather than the other way around. How often when, when you're sick and you can't attend worship, or you're traveling, or you're providentially hindered for some reason from attending worship, and you just go about your day. 
We, we need to learn from this. If, if we can't be physically present, we need to learn from Daniel and, 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 and stop and, and worship and pray along with God's people according to the Lord's calendar. Clearly, this pleased the Lord with Daniel here. And he makes specific, uh, makes a, a specific point, I guess you should say, to answer Daniel's prayer at that sacri- time of sacrifice. Let's learn from how Daniel structured his life around the corporate liturgical worship of God. So God answered swiftly, even though the fruit came later. God answered at the evening sacrifice uh, as well, communing with um, um, Daniel at the hour that God had promised that he would be found in that corporate public worship. But also we see, again, the point at hand, God answers Daniel's prayer by sending him wisdom. We know that what stimulated Daniel's prayer was that Jeremiah's prophesied that after 70 years the exile would end. Um, But it's clear that with the angel coming that the Lord wanted Daniel to see those 70 years with a much sharper spiritual focus. In other words, Daniel needed help to understand Jeremiah's prophecy. Uh, in this sense, it's kind of like the handwriting on the wall back in uh, chapter 5 with Bel, Bel, Belshazzar. If you'll remember, the, the, the hand appeared and, and Daniel had to come and interpret the, uh, the wording for the king. Uh, and this, the handwriting on the wall, the words on the wall were clear. There's just three Aramaic words. Anybody could read them. But the significance wasn't in the words themselves. It was in what those words meant. And the same is true here. 70 years till the end of the exile, that's not a mystery. Anybody can understand that. But a divine interpreter was needed to show what those 70 years really meant. The spiritual significance of those 70 years couldn't be discerned by just ordinary, unaided human study. Brethren, this is important to us as well. Wisdom and understanding, even of the plain, simple, straightforward truths of Scripture, only comes as a gift from God. That's why we pray when we read or hear God's Word. Lord, open my eyes to see wondrous things from Your Word. This is why we know, like 1 Corinthians 2, that the natural man cannot understand, or neither is he willing to understand or accept the things of God. The Holy Spirit must be indwelling someone, must open those eyes before we can see spiritual truths. But this is God's answer to Daniel. To give him wisdom and spiritual insight. And let me just stop here and say, again, this is probably not what Daniel wanted or expected. Lord, I'm praying that you would deliver us from our suffering. This hurts. We're in exile. We're in a pagan land. We're under the thumb of an evil king. And your answer to me is to give me wisdom in a sermon? What? I mean, even when we pray and we ask for God to act, we don't typically think like, Lord, give me the gift of wisdom and that's the answer to all my problems. 
But brethren, again, the point, God knows what we need more than we know what we need. We often pray for God to change our circumstances when what we really need instead is for God to change us and give us a different perspective on our circumstances. Think of James chapter 1. Famously opens. Count it all joy when you meet with various trials. Trials of various kinds. I mean, how often have you read that and you thought, count it all joy when my life is falling apart? Okay. Count it all joy when I'm in pain, when I'm discouraged, when I'm miserable, when I'm broken, when I'm hopeless. Count it joy when everything I've longed for and toiled for has gone up in flames. Count it all joy when I don't see an end in sight, when I don't see a way out, when I don't see how I'll ever be the same. How is that possible? Is it just reciting Romans 8.28 and and acting like a stoic? No. The key to James' statement there just comes three verses later when he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives it generously without reproach. To count it all joy when we meet trials, we need divine wisdom. We need to see things from God's perspective. We need spiritual grace to have spiritual vision. And so that's Daniel here. He longs for a change in circumstances. He longs for an end to his suffering. But what needed to happen most, what he needed to happen first, was that he needed wisdom and understanding from God. And that's exactly why Gabriel comes. Verse 22, Daniel, I've come to give you insight and understanding. Brethren, often wisdom is the answer to our our prayers and it's the remedy to our trials. Often it's wisdom that enables us to faithfully persevere in hardship rather than just a change in circumstances. And yet don't miss this point. Don't look at this as simply, oh, that's pretty cold. God just saying, here, I'm going to throw some truth at you. We give you wisdom while you grovel in the dust. There's a key statement here. Puts everything else in perspective. Verse 23. Gabriel says to him, Daniel, I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. You're greatly loved. Beautiful and overwhelming benediction of divine favor. To be loved by God, isn't that all we want in life and in death? More than anything else, to be loved by God? What's even more amazing about this is that this comes, as we see from verse 20, while Daniel was in the process of confessing his sin. Daniel had sinned against God. He had broken His laws. He had transgressed His commandments. He had refused to hear His voice. And yet even before he can finish detailing the list of shameful things that was in his heart and life, God runs to him on the wings of an angel like the, like the father sprinting to the prodigal son. And through the lips of a divine messenger, he says, You are greatly loved. 
It's the kind of God we serve, full of mercy and compassion. And know that this is not just limited to Daniel alone. It's not. I mean, don't confuse me or Pastor Rob with an angel. Like, that's pretty obvious, right? But we are messengers set apart and commissioned by the Lord to speak on His behalf. And every single Sunday in our worship, God speaks through us to give you an assurance of pardon right after you confess your sin. While the words are barely off our lips and the shame is still in our hearts, if you have faith in Christ, He runs to you and through a messenger calls you by name and says, Child, you are greatly loved. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you might be in the depths of despair. Yes, your life may be in shambles like Daniel's difficult circumstances here. But isn't that the most important thing that you need to hear in such a moment? That you are greatly loved? And let me say as well, you need to hear that from someone else. You need to hear it from someone else because you might not feel that He loves you. You may look at the evidence of your life and say, there's no way He can love me. You may look at the circumstances and say, God's clearly punishing me for something. There's no way He loves me. That's why He sets apart pastors and preachers and teachers divinely commissioned to tell you what you must believe from the outside. Because the Gospel doesn't come from in here. It comes to us from the outside. Is there anything, brethren, in life that you can endure if you know that God loves you? As we turn now to the more difficult portion of this passage, don't misunderstand and don't neglect the fact that all of that that comes, the desolation, the trouble, the trials, the destroying of Israel and the temple all must be understood within the context the fact that God greatly loves His children and His people. So that's the immediate answer to Daniel's prayer. Wisdom, the assurance that God's divine favor and love is upon him. Secondly, we see the ultimate answer. After the gift of wisdom, we see the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption. In verse 23, Gabriel said that as soon as Daniel prayed, a word went out from God, a decree. Uh, He mentions the decree again in verse 24, and he mentions it again in verse 25. It's a play on words here in the original language with the Hebrew, Daniel's word went up, God's word went out, and the king's word to rebuild the temple went forth. That's, that's, the, uh, um, that's the structure here. It's a beautiful picture of how God works through prayer and how He uses means to accomplish His purposes, as we considered last week. But what is this word all about? What is this word? Hmm, think John 1 1 here. 
What is this word? How is Daniel to understand and have wisdom concerning this word? Well, verse 24, let's read it again. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression. Six things here. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Let me just stop and say here again, this is a tremendously controversial passage. But I want to point out that verse 24 is the summary statement. And 25, 26, and 27 simply just detail the three stages in which that summary statement will happen. And I believe this is really important for us to acknowledge Because if we see that, then the next three verses are pretty fairly straightforward. And I fear that some people don't see that, and that's why they twist, and maybe twist, or they interpret uh, the next three verses in a very different manner. So, hang with me here as we work through these things. Um, Summary statement in verse... 24, and I hope that you can see verse 24, it concerns the work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's pretty obvious. Uh, most, uh, almost all evangelicals agree with this. Uh, but think about this. So 70 weeks are decreed to finish the transgression. To finish transgression means to deal with sin. Specifically in this context, to deal with the sin of Israel and how they broke the old covenant. Seventy weeks to deal fully and finally with Israel's sin. And and I'm going to argue that this is um, Christ on the cross taking the covenantal curses upon himself. But also there's an allusion to how the destruction of Israel will come as well in 70 AD. To finish transgression, transgression to, to finally and fully deal out the curses of the old covenant. We'll come back to that. Something similar, then, is meant by the next thing, to put an end to sin. Literally, this means to seal up sin. To put it away. To cast it as far as the east is from the west. It shows us the full, complete forgiveness that we enjoy in Christ through His atoning death. No more sacrifices, no more atonement is needed. We, we read it earlier, Hebrews 10.4, by one sacrifice He has perfected forever. And there's no more need for sacrifices and offerings. Then, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This concerns restoring righteousness. Remember, righteousness is not the absence of sin. It's the positive fulfillment of the requirements of the law which mirror the image of God. Remember that the problem of the old covenant and the problem with all of us has fallen in Adam is that we haven't just broken God's law with our sin, but we failed to positively, proactively obey it to the fullest. So to bring in everlasting righteousness, it's a great way of summarizing the active obedience of Jesus Christ. He obeyed the law fully and perfectly, fulfilling all righteousness, and that righteousness is given to us as a gift. It's imputed to us the gift of everlasting righteousness through faith in Him. 
So we have atonement, we have uh, forgiveness, we have the making us righteous, and then we have to seal up vision and profit. Uh, hopefully here, uh, Hebrews 1.1 comes to mind. God's spoken many times in many ways through many prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken with finality. He's spoken to us through His Son. Christ is the great and final prophet of God. He is a sum and substance Consummation of all vision and all prophecy and all revelation. Then lastly, in verse 24, we read to anoint a most holy place. A holy of holies. This too we have in Christ. John 1.14 He tabernacled among us. Same language is used. John 2.19 He refers to himself as the true temple of God. The Holy of Holies. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. He is the fulfillment of what the physical Holy of Holies represented and foreshadowed. And so there is no more need for a physical temple or tabernacle on earth. So, you see the ultimate answer to Daniel's prayer here? The transgressions and their sin had led to the exile. It had led to the destruction of the holy place. And God says, yes, okay, I am going to restore, after 70 years, temporarily restore those earthly institutions. But that's not going to deal with the real issue. It's just going to happen again until the real issue is dealt with. Your sin and transgression and separation that led to this. So Daniel's prayer for restoration was correct, but he needed to see that something far greater than the temple, far greater than the holy city, needed to happen so that the real problem would be addressed. And that's what God promises here. I'm going to deal with the real issues. So again, if we understand verse 24 as a summary, then the details of the next three verses should easily fall into place. Now, we do kind of run into a snag here. And again, hang with me. Some of these details are, um, I guess, I don't know, we get in the weeds a little bit. But we run into a little snag because we have this phrase 70 weeks or 77s. It seems like the timeline given for these things. Um, Now, I don't have time to go through all the different views on this. There's three prominent views, a critical view, this all happened in, in, uh, with the Maccabean period long before Christ. They, they don't interpret any of it as leading to Christ. Um, very easily dismissed. There's the dispensational view where you have 69 literal weeks and then the pause for 2,000 plus years and the 70th week is, is the tribulation in the future. Um, that is really far-fetched as well. I'm not going to go into detail, but you'll see here in a moment how that can't be the right interpretation. But then you have uh, another view that tries to fit 490 years into the rebuilding of the temple to um, the consummation of Christ's work. Um, To me, there's just too much speculation as to to when the date starts and when it ends. Um, I just don't think that we can really nail that down. Good men make a good attempt to do that, but I hold that we miss the point if we start counting years. I think we miss the point. I say this because numbers in the book of Daniel and in prophetic literature literature are almost always symbolic. Almost always, without exception. I say this as well because 70 times 7 counts two 
symbolic prophecies and, and puts them together because Jeremiah 29 mentions 70 years of exile, but Leviticus chapter 26, speaking of the exile, just spoke of it in terms of sevenfold. So, 70 times 7. I think as well, a good kind of insight here is how Jesus spoke of 70 times 7. Matthew 18, remember? Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? Just seven times, right? And Jesus says, no, but 70 times 7. And I'm sure you've heard that preached a million times. Jesus is not saying that 490 times is, you know, in the 491st time, you don't have to forgive Peter is saying, Jesus is saying to Peter, you've missed the point if you start counting. Peter, your perspective on forgiveness is far too small. That's what God is saying to Gabriel here. Daniel, your perspective of 70 years is far too small. I have a, a plan that's immeasurably greater than you can imagine. It's immeasurably more perfect than you can imagine. It's immeasurably more timely than you can ever imagine. An ultimate plan for an ultimate victory beyond your wildest imagination. And Daniel, I have it determined down to the very day I have the exact timing all worked out it's perfect so I'm not going to try to count the dates and give you a bunch of dates but with this let's press on and work through these next three verses and bring this to a conclusion verse 25 then 70 weeks We have the first stage of these 70 weeks. This is an immediate answer to Daniel's prayer. In the short term, God will restore the city and the temple in Jerusalem. He will do that until the coming of an anointed one, the prince. He says as well here in verse 25 that it's going to be rebuilt in a troubled time. Well, if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, you know that. The rebuilding happened in a troubled time. It wasn't a bed of roses, but God's word was fulfilled. And then the next verse, the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall come. The anointed one uh, that is mentioned in the previous verse is mentioned again. And a lot of debate on who this refers to. It's really not that hard, people. Anointed, if you read it in Hebrew, what's the word for anointed? Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one who was cut off the language of cursing for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 8. Christ will come and be cut off, and he shall have nothing. He was friendless at his death, everyone abandoned him. He was naked. The soldiers gambled over his clothing. He had no beauty or form that we should desire him. He even was buried in a borrowed grave. He was cut off that we might be brought in. He was impoverished so that we might be clothed and given everything. But this is where things get difficult. Then we read, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is where dispensationals go off and say this has to refer to a future Antichrist. But does that really fit the context? Where is the Antichrist mentioned anywhere here? Others hold, well, this refers to Titus in 70 AD. He came 
and destroyed the temple fully and finally. But is title really, a Titus really called the prince? Well, on one hand, it is correct because Titus was the agent of destruction, but again, the subject at hand is the Messiah is the one who destroys the city. What does that mean? It means the Messiah, Jesus, was the agent behind the destroying of the city. Titus and the people were the means that he used to do it. I know, it's shocking. Jesus using Rome, pagan Rome, to destroy the city of God? Well, if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, you know that uh, God speaks of Assyria as the rod of my affliction. I'm going to use them to strike Israel. Same with Babylon as well. But really what nails this down is what we heard earlier from Matthew chapter 22 and verse 7. In the parable that we heard in the reading of the law, Jesus says that the king of the kingdom of heaven sent his troops to destroy the murderers who rejected his his son and his prophets and burn that city. Everybody knew he was speaking of Jerusalem. Just like the exile, the overthrowing of the temple in 70 AD was God's doing. And this is further elaborated when he speaks about its end shall come with a flood, desolations are decreed. In verse 27, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Who is the he here? And he shall make a strong covenant. Again, some hold that it's the Antichrist. Someday in the future, Israel is going to be rebuilt. Sacrifices are going to resume. An Antichrist is going to make a special covenant with Jewish people, but then he's going to break it and destroy the city. But brethren, that goes against the grammar of the text. It goes against the theology of the text. Not to mention it's just redundant in redemptive history. Instead, who is the he? Well, well, when you come to a he in a sentence and it's undefined, how do you figure out who it refers to? Pastor Rob preached a sermon. He preached the gospel. Who's the he? You know it's Pastor Rob because I just said it in the previous sentence. He. The he in verse 27 is the prince of verse 26. He is the Messiah, the anointed one that's in the entire context. In fact, to be even more specific, yes, the he is undefined, but the Hebrew word here actually is gibar, which means mighty. And as you'll see, translators often connect it to the covenant, a strong covenant or a mighty covenant. But you can also connect it with the he. And and I mention that because Isaiah 9-6 refers to Jesus Christ as wonderful counselor and mighty God. Gebar, the same word used, then attached to the word God. Again, it's mentioned in Isaiah 10-21, and I want you to listen to this. Hang with me, I know. Listen to Isaiah 21 with these words in your mind. 
The Lord says a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Same word, again, that's used as translated he here in verse 27. They will return to the mighty God, for though your people Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed. Same thing, same wording, same language. A mighty one will make an end. He will bring desolation and decree is poured out. The same wording, same event. This is speaking of Christ. Christ making a new covenant. The new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of and Daniel would have known of. The new covenant that Jesus says, in my blood, that He instituted right before His death. The new covenant that does what? Puts an end to sacrifice and offering. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. The old covenant is gone. It's been ended. A new covenant has been inaugurated. When Christ came down, inaugurated the new covenant, Moses went down. The sacrificial system went down. The temple went down. The Holy of Holies went down. And even though the Jews rejected Jesus and continued to offer sacrifices in 70 AD, the Lord made sure through Rome that it would end once and for all, forever. What then is the abomination, the wing of abominations? What could be more of an abomination and blasphemy than crucifying the Son of God. Israel is rejecting their Messiah. What could be more of abomination than that? Yes, Antiochus uh, offered a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies and, and, or an Antichrist if he did rebuild the temple and, and did something to the temple. That pales in comparison of the abomination of crucifying the Son of God. Especially... After Christ is the full and final sacrifice and atonement. Especially because He's Israel's promised Messiah. So the abomination is rejecting Christ. The abomination is is turning away and trusting in our own righteousness. And, And this is why Jesus in Matthew 23, 38 uses the wording of this passage. He tells the Jewish leaders, your house is left to you desolate same word desolate in Christ's death the abomination of all abominations was committed the the, the temple curtain was uh, torn The, the, the presence of the Lord was permanently removed and so the Messiah came and executed judgment upon unbelieving Israel even this last statement the decreed end is poured out on the desolator Uh, I would refer you to the KJV or the uh, New King James Version for a better way of translating that verb. It says, better poured out on the desolate. That is the city itself. The Prince is Christ. The Anointed One is Christ. He is the exalted Lord of history. He rules and reigns. He even supervises the destruction of the apostate temple And thus Daniel was being told, Jerusalem will be destroyed again. 
Jerusalem, because of their rebellion, judgment will come again. But in that, Daniel, a new covenant would be established. A new hope would be given. And Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He's the great prophet. He seals up vision and and prophecy. He's the great priest. He makes an atonement, uh, puts an end to sacrifices. He finishes transgressions. And he's the king of kings, the one who rules and reigns over his covenant people. And he destroys all his and our enemies. Don't you see then? Babylon's not the problem. The exile's not the problem. Rome is not the problem. Titus is not the problem. Jerusalem and the destruction is not the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is that we have sinned against the holy and righteous God and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The judgment that He executed on unbelieving Israel, He will execute upon all those who turn their back to the perfect atonement, the perfect righteousness, the God-man in the flesh offered for sinners and eternal salvation. God points Daniel to the real problem and the real solution. Well, brethren, as we conclude this morning, circle back around to where we began. Don't lose sight of the main point. God answers prayer, but not always in the way we expect. God knows our real needs, and those real and ultimate needs are far greater than our circumstances or our perspective. God answered Daniel's prayer by giving him wisdom. God answered Daniel's prayer by assuring him that he is loved. God answered Daniel's prayer by giving him a gospel of of ultimate redemption. And he's done the same for us as well. God might change our immediate circumstances. He might answer our prayers in the short term. But more than that, what He left with Daniel is what He's left with us. It's all that we need. A Gospel. A Gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. A Gospel through which the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Christ crucified for me. God's love for me. A a, a righteousness being worked in me. And a hope of eternal life where we will fully and finally be brought home. And every tear and every sorrow and every pain and every discouragement And every frustration and every fear and every anxiety will be fully and finally swept away. Doesn't this challenge our prayers a little bit? Aren't our prayers too small? We're so focused on here and now. We're so focused on what's going on in our world. But God says, look to the heavenly city. Look to the heavenly Son. Look to Christ and live. Well, may God give us grace to see and embrace these things with a true heart of faith this morning. Let's pray.